What do you think of when you hear the phrase damage control? Maybe you think of a politician giving a press conference in an attempt to rehabilitate themselves after a damaging revelation or a damaging news story has come out. Maybe you think of the fall guys. We might call them lower people on the totem pole who take the blame and take the hit and take the fall so as to preserve their superiors. Maybe you think of the deleted tweets. Somebody has a hot take on some current event and they tweet out something and then they uh, get some blowback and they have to delete the tweet and, and uh, you pull up the page and it says this tweet is no longer available. Maybe you think of the apologies that flow from institutions or individuals after something negatively affects their public image and they have to walk back or explain away the inflammatory comments that were made or whatever the case might be. There are all kinds of ways of doing damage control depending on the situation. Now, as we come to the final chapter of the book of Judges tonight, we find the nation of Israel attempting, in a way, to do some damage control because of their mistaken actions in a moment of passion. They had, as it were, painted themselves into a corner, and here they tried to work their way out so as to preserve the entire nation intact. And so let's look to the text, Judges chapter 21. Judges chapter 21. Our historian writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin in marriage. So the people came to Bethel and sat there before God until evening and lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. They said, Why, O Lord God of Israel, has this come about in Israel so that one tribe should be missing today in Israel? It came about the next day that the people arose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Then the sons of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the sons of Israel were sorry for their brother Benjamin, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? And they said... What one is there of the tribes of Israel who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were numbered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. And the congregation sent 12,000 of the valiant warriors there and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword with the women and the little ones. This is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every man and woman who has lain with a man. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. The whole congregation sent word and spoke to the sons of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimmon, and proclaimed peace to them. Benjamin returned at that time, And they gave them the women whom they had kept alive from the women of Jabesh-Gilead, yet they were not enough for them. And the people were sorry for Benjamin 
because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? They said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, so that a tribe will not be blotted out from Israel. But we cannot give them wives of our daughters. For the sons of Israel had sworn, saying, Cursed is he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is a feast of the Lord from year to year in Shiloh, which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and on the south side of Lebanoah. And they commanded the sons of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in wait in the vineyards, and watch. And behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the, dan- in the dances, then you shall come out of the vineyards, and each of you shall catch his wife from the daughters of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. It shall come about, when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, that we shall say to them, Give them to us voluntarily, because we did not take for each man of Benjamin a wife in battle, nor did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. The sons of Benjamin did so, and took wives according to their number, from those who danced, whom they carried away. And they went and returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the cities, and lived in them. The sons of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and each one of them went out from there to his inheritance. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, the chapter that we've just read shows us the sad and odd conclusion that came as a result of the rape and death of the Levite's concubine back in Judges 19. Now, a few weeks ago, in looking at chapter 20, we saw how the tribe of Benjamin had stood in solidarity with the wicked men of Gibeah when Israel demanded that the men of Gibeah be handed over to them. And in response, the rest of the tribes of Israel united together and waged war against the Benjaminites, having been repulsed On the first two days of battle, and having lost 40,000 men, they went up then the third day and were victorious over the Benjaminites. And as we observed there, the tribes of Israel were right in the main in what they were doing. They were right in taking the battle to the sons of Benjamin. The Lord himself had said to them in chapter 20, verse 28, that they should go up and that he would deliver the Benjaminites into their hands. And the Lord did indeed do as he had said. The men of Benjamin were destroyed, all of them except for those 600 who had fled to the rock of Remen and hung out there for four months. Now, in that fighting, the tribes of Israel had done the Lord's bidding and thus had done what was right. But the close of chapter 20, chapter 20, verse 48, tells of something which is more ambiguous, shall we say. The men of Israel turned back against the sons of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, both the entire city with the cattle and all that they found. They also set on fire all the cities which they found. In other words, they waged total war with the tribe of Benjamin. And we mean total war in the most absolute sense we can imagine. In doing this, Israel had essentially treated the entire tribe of Benjamin as though they were under the ban, as though they were devoted to total destruction, as the inhabitants of the land of Canaan were devoted to destruction at the time of the conquest under Joshua. Now, Deuteronomy 
chapter 13, verses 12 through 18, commanded that that was to be done in the case of an Israelite city that had gone over to idolatry. The whole town was to be destroyed, and the booty was to be burned. The situation here at the end of the book of Judges, as bad as it was, was not one-to-one corresponding with what we find in Deuteronomy 13. Now, granted, what happened at Gibeah was horrendous, and it was extremely wicked of the Benjaminites to take the side of their wicked kinsmen. And the Lord had clearly sanctioned taking the battle to the Benjaminite warriors. But as for what appears to be the destruction of the entire tribe of Benjamin, women, children, cities, towns, cattle, the whole deal, we have neither precept in the law for the nation of Israel doing this, nor do we have any express word in the text of Judges here which approves it. In short, it appears that the command of Deuteronomy 13 was not applicable to the entire tribe of Benjamin as the Israelites seem to be applying that or at least some logic similar to the people of Benjamin. And given the grief of Israel that appears here in chapter 21, we just read their grief over their brother Benjaminites and their desire to keep the tribe alive and to perpetuate them and their speaking peace to the Benjaminite holdouts up at the Rock of Remen in verse 13, it's apparent that the Israelites too did not believe that the entire tribe of Benjamin was under the ban. If they had believed that, why bother speaking peace to these 600 warriors? Why bother in uh, preserving the tribe at all if you believed that they were under the ban? You see this refrain of their regret over what had happened to Benjamin popping up several times here in chapter 21. You see it in verse 3, you see it in verse 6, you see it in verse 15. In short, it seems that Israel, though right in pursuing Benjamin in battle, was wrong in their severity toward the cities, the property, and the non-combatants of Benjamin. And it seems that they themselves realized this after the heat of the battle and the bloody vengeance on the non-combatants was all over. They cooled down and saw things in a different light. Now they saw that there was one tribe of Israel that was in danger of complete extinction because of their violent rage in what had started out as a good fight. And now that the fighting was over, they sit down for a moment They mourn the breach of the tribes, and they also have to deal with a couple of vows that they had made in the events leading up to the fight. First, as we find early on in the chapter, the men of Israel had made this oath that they would not give their daughters to the men of Benjamin in marriage. They were, again, treating them like the nations of Canaan were required to be treated. But the thing is, is that they were under no obligation to make that vow. They made the vow anyways, and now they're stuck with it. And meanwhile, all that is left of the tribe of Benjamin is 600 men, all of them now either bachelors or widowers. If these men don't find brides from somewhere, then the breach of the tribes that was begun in battle would become steadily a finality as each one of these old Single men would grow old and die. And again, now that the heat and the passion and the anger has subsided and their heads are cooler, they don't want that possibility to become reality. But what are they going to do? They'd already sworn that, uh, and we find verse 7, very particularly that they had sworn by the Lord that they would not give their daughters to the Benjaminite 
uh, warriors. Great damage had been done, and now they've got to figure out a way to control the damage. And well, they had recourse to another oath that they had taken in the lead up to the battle, namely that oath that's recounted in verse 5, that oath that they would put to death those who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah. That, uh, in other words, these people that would not come up with them to join in the fight against Benjamin. They essentially said, whoever is not with us in this fight against Benjamin is against us, and they will be treated as those who are against us. And so they sent 12,000 men to deal with the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead. Only here was the catch. The virgin women of the town were to be spared and given to the Benjaminites as brides. The men of Jabesh-Gilead did not take part in the oath because they were not there at Mizpah. And anyways, when all was said and done, they would be dead. They, would not, uh, they had not pledged to avoid giving their daughters to the Benjaminites, and they would not actually be giving them to the Benjaminites because they would not be alive to be giving their daughters to the Benjaminites. This was the nation's attempt at damage control. They had almost exterminated a tribe. Now how do we, how do we preserve the tribe? And it's, it's interesting. If you, if you see the events of chapter 21, in what they were doing, they were roughly, in some ways, keeping in step with what had been done in the battle against the Midianites back at uh, Numbers chapter 31. Numbers 31, a thousand men from each tribe were sent to kill the Midianites who had uh, collaborated with with Balaam and had led the Israelites into into idolatry. And here in Judges 21, we have a force of 12,000 men being sent to Jabesh-Gilead. In Numbers 31, the virgin women of Midian were spared to become wives for the Israelites, as we find in Numbers 31, 18. And this was a, a practice that was further sanctioned more broadly in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 10 through 14, that, uh, that, that young virgin women captured in war could become Israelite brides. But here, in more or less following what they seem to be treating as a precedent set in Numbers 31, they seem to be repeating the overly harsh zeal with which they had already decimated Benjamin by doing roughly the same thing to the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead. It seems possible also that their actions here flew in the face of an explicit law given for warfare in Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 through 18, which dealt with making war against a city, a city which did not belong to one of the seven nations of the Canaanites. For the seven nations of the Canaanites, when the Israelites came in, they had to put them completely under the ban. But for other cities against whom Israel would war, the rules were different. The city was first to be offered terms of peace. And if such were agreed to, then the inhabitants were to become forced laborers. If not, uh, and the battle ensued, then only the men would be killed. The women, the children, the animals were to be left alive as spoil for the victors. But here, when it came to punishing Jabesh-Gilead in Judges 21... While it's possible that the men of Jabesh-Gilead deserved the punishment that they received, it also seems that Israel took things way too far, killing the wives and children as well as the fighting men. They had bound themselves with an oath to put to death those who did not come up to Mizpah, but strictly speaking, that vow should have only been applied to the men. The women and children were not required to come up. 
And so in short, Israel repeated its mistake against Benjamin by following similar tactics against Jabesh-Gilead with a caveat to spare the virgin so as to attempt some damage control for their already previously misguided zeal against the Benjaminites. At the end of the day, they net 400 virgins. Two-thirds of the way there. 200 warriors still are bachelors or widowers. Solution number two, then, is to snatch the young virgins from Shiloh as they go out to take part in the dances at the time of the annual festival to the Lord. This is thought by some to be the Feast of Tabernacles. And so the remaining 200 Benjaminites could go out, each grab a bride, and then make a run for Benjaminite territory. The elders of the congregation, uh, they're in verses, uh, as we see them called in verses uh, 16, and them speaking then in verse 19, would attempt to then placate the fathers and brothers of the Shiloh girls and calm them down so as to go along with the plan. And the Benjaminites do their thing. They take 200 Shiloh girls, everybody goes home, and our author's final word after all of these crazy and really mind-boggling things have happened, our author's final word, Verse 25, in those days there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's all, folks. The book ends there. Now, now what are we supposed to glean from this? Well, I'll mention, I'll mention three things that I think we can glean from the chapter. First, we see that Israel had problems all around. Everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. And look at the mess. Look at the mess that it caused. A town in Israel expressed its homosexual lust against a traveling Levite. And when his host denied handing this Levite over to them, they settled for raping his concubine and abusing her such that she died. The Levite then chops up her body, sends it out to the 12 tribes so as to rouse Israel to take action against the perpetrators of the deed. The town uh, was defended by its tribe, leading to civil war. 40,000 Israelites dead on one side, 25,000 plus Benjaminites dead on the other side, not to mention the wholesale slaughter of the Benjaminite families. Then comes the slaughter of Jabesh Gilead and the giving of the 600 women to the 600 remaining Benjaminites. To say that the situation had gotten a little out of hand would be the understatement. These are the kinds of things that happen when there's no king in the land and when everybody does what's right in their own eyes. It's an absolute mess. Obviously, at this time, there was no earthly king among the Israelite, and that seems to be our author's meaning here. But it's also obvious that large swaths of the nation were not submitting to God as king. They were simply doing whatever they saw fit to do. And when people act like that, with no fear of God before their eyes, and also no governmental restraint to keep people in line, this is what the end result will be. And we need to learn here that the fear of God and good civil government are great blessings which are not to be despised. The best remedy for this kind of strife and complete breakdown of society is the fear of God, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But yet even by God's common grace, when people do not repent and believe in Christ, this kind of breakdown can be and often by God's grace is prevented by good civil government. When we consider the depths to which mankind may plummet, it's no wonder that we find Paul speaking even of unbelieving and wicked governmental authorities 
as being a minister of God for your good, Romans 13, 4, and as an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil, Romans 13, 5. This is why responsible Christians, if we're thinking, will view attempts to defund the police, attempts to uh, descend into uh, to anarchy, the, the dissolution of all government as madness. Obviously, police officers and all government officials are capable of great abuses and great and terrible sins and crimes. And when they do, they should be held accountable in accordance with the law. But without them as a body, there would be even greater abuses and more terrible sins abounding on every side and less mechanism for holding anyone accountable. And so we should be thankful for civil government as an institution. We should pray for civil government, and according to our stations and callings, we should seek to help civil government do what is right. For most of us, one way that we can do that is to cast responsible votes in public elections. And more importantly, we should all submit ourselves to Christ as king. That's the, that's the ultimate answer for this kind of chaos, submitting to Christ as king. This will cure a lot of the problems that are here when people do this. Uh, but thank God that even, uh, even when that remedy is not sought by so many, nevertheless, God in his grace provides a civil government to at least provide some constraints, some restraints against evil. A second thing that we see here is the danger of wrongly applied zeal. And we touched, touched on this subject just a little bit in Sunday school this morning, but we see it very clearly here. And as we've, as we've established, it wasn't wrong for, for Israel to fight against Benjamin. God told them to fight against Benjamin. But they seem to have done so in a way that was beyond the measure and beyond the golden mean of what was required. And as we've seen, there's no need to put the families of the Benjaminites under the ban. There was also no need to take such a vow about refusing to give daughters to them in marriage. They had unnecessarily complicated their lives by doing so. They painted themselves into a back corner, and then they had to find their way out of the corner. And also it seems that some of the same general problem was at work when the Israelites behaved as they did toward Jabesh Gilead. They may have been right to punish the men, for not joining with them. But, again, they seem to have gone beyond the right measure and the golden mean. In the words of Dale Ralph Davis, this chapter shows us a mix of consistency and confusion. Right? They're, they're trying to be consistent. They're trying to hold up this vow. No one of us has given a daughter to the Benjaminites. Sticking to our guns on that one. Now what are we going to do? What, what kind of loopholes still remain for preserving the tribe. The lines were very tangled. It was a mix of consistency and confusion. And their misapplied zeal stands out all the more if we think about the broader situation of Israel at the time. The, Is the Israelites were supposed to be devoting the nations of Canaan to the ban. There were still Canaanites in the promised land at this time. And so just for one example, in this immediate context, there were Jebusites in Jerusalem back in chapter 19. And that's why the Levite wanted to, wanted to go on. He said, uh, his servant that was with him said, hey, let's put up for the night here and stay with the Jebusites in Jerusalem. And the Levite said, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. They're not Israelites. We're pushing on. We want to stay among our people tonight. And so they press on and they stay in Gibeah of Benjamin for the night. And that's when all of this trouble 
breaks out. But the Israelites were supposed to be making total war against the seven nations of Canaan and refraining from intermarriage with them. But they weren't doing that. Here in the closing chapters of Judges, we find that they not only were treating uh, Israelites like Canaanites, the Israelites had also become Canaanites in their behavior, in their immorality, in their idolatry. And they're also fighting amongst themselves in a way that they're supposed to be fighting against the Canaanites, meanwhile failing to fight against the Canaanites as they were commanded to do. One commentator put it this way. He said, the, speaking of, of Israel coming off of this uh, twofold defeat from the Benjaminites and then going after them that third day of battle, the smart of their double defeat betrayed them into marring a righteous cause with the bitterness of personal revenge. We should beware of maintaining God's cause in an ungodly way. Zeal is like fire, a good servant, but a bad master. Natural passions imported into an otherwise just undertaking spoil all the good of it. Men like Jehu say, come see my zeal for the Lord. And when all the while their zeal is for self, they are glad to give their self-will a fine name, whilst in reality they follow the will of the Lord only insofar as it does not clash with their own. Isn't that a problem? Isn't that a problem when we say, see my zeal for the Lord, and maybe we kind of do some things in zeal for the Lord, but we do a whole bunch of other things. That's more just our anger and our own sinfulness coming out. It was a problem here, and it's a problem that is still with us. We make the mistake of thinking that just because the cause in and of itself is good, that therefore the end somehow justifies the mean. The goal is good, doesn't matter how I get there. That's what we think, but that's not right. We have to guard against what one man called fighting the battles of the Lord in the spirit of the devil. And so we're reminded in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and following, that even in cases where rebuke is necessary and where people have fallen into the snare of the devil and have been held captive by him to do his will, that even in those kinds of situations, bondservant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So by all means, let's take our place in the Lord's army and serve faithfully in whatever part of the battle may come to us. But we can't simply make up the rules as we go along. We always have to serve God within the bounds that he has set. We have to serve God in the way in which he calls us to serve him and never let anger, misapplied zeal, or any other emotion to cloud our judgment. Thus it was that Paul said to the Ephesians, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Unchecked and undealt with, what begins as righteous indignation and godly anger can turn into sin and be coldness and bitterness and be a raging within us that Satan can exploit to his own advantage. And he can do this by confusing us or by discouraging us or causing us to focus so much on the cause of our anger that being angry then becomes the driving force of our existence 
or in some cases maybe the driving point of our service to the Lord. And this tendency for uh, what begins as godly anger to potentially become destructive is, is illustrated in an encounter that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had with the Canadian Baptist minister named T.T. Shields back in 1937. The two men had shared much in common with respect to their theology and their interpretation of Scripture, but Lloyd-Jones couldn't resist the feeling that Dr. Shields was uh, sometimes too controversial, too denunciatory, and too censorious in his uh, denunciations of both liberal Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Dr. Shields had been involved in an attempt to keep liberalism out of a university in Canada called McMaster University in the early to mid-1920s. And in the meantime, there was this, this unhelpful element that seemed to have seeped into his ministry. And so when Lloyd-Jones was in Canada in 1937... He and Dr. Shields sat down one afternoon for coffee, and they discussed and debated this matter. And finally, Lloyd-Jones said to him, he said, Dr. Shields, you used to be known as the Canadian Spurgeon, and you were. You are an outstanding man in intellect and preaching gift in every other respect. But over the McMaster University business in the early 20s, you suddenly changed and became negatory and denunciatory. I feel it has ruined your ministry. Why don't you come back? Drop all this and preach the gospel to people positively and win them. And Dr. Shields was, was moved. He said nobody had ever spoken to him quite like that. And he uh, went back and basically said that he would, he would talk to the, the board at his church and he would kind of put himself in their hands and do, do whatever they said. And so he, he went back and talked to the, the board at his church and they said, they said no, you need to keep on, keep on plugging the way you've been plugging. And... Apparently, he never then did change his approach, and eventually he drove away from his church uh, some who had been his warmest supporters. And Ian Murray, in his biography of Lloyd-Jones, commented that Dr. Lloyd-Jones became more firmly convinced of the way in which an orthodox ministry can be spoilt by a wrong spirit and by wrong methods. There's a time and a place to be angry at destructive theology or angry at sin, But if we don't deal properly with that, it can take a tragic and destructive direction. And this is this is true in all all across the board, not just not just in preaching, not just in ministry. This is this is true for all of us in in any aspect of life. I'll just just mention one. For those of you who are parents, think about the way we discipline and correct and instruct our children. Obviously, this is a good thing to train, correct. We see our children sinning, needing correction. We know that it needs to be dealt with. How quick, though, can we be launching out on that good cause and then turn and act in anger in a, in a way that is, that is inappropriate and therefore does harm to our relationship, to our children, or to us? Or You, you, you get the point. This, this can happen, that... The cause can be good, but in our, in our anger and in our zeal for it, we can go off the rails. And we need to watch for that. God's business must be done in God's way. And thirdly and finally, we see in this episode and in the subsequent history of the nation, the amazing grace of God towards sinful people. Right? This nation had made a mess of themselves in multiple ways. The book of Judges is very, very clear about that. Now keep in mind that these events here at the end of the book took place 
within a generation of the days of Joshua. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, was still high priest during these times. Most of the events of the book of Judges actually chronologically follow after these events. But nevertheless, with all of their sins notwithstanding, God had mercy on the nation. He didn't wipe them out because of their sins. They were chastened and disciplined, but they were not rejected. God had set his love upon them, not for their sake or for their righteousness, but because he had chosen to love them. And that is good news for us, because God is still the same. He never changes. He says to the Israelites, the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, that I, the Lord, do not change, and therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Isn't that true for us? We are not consumed because the Lord does not change. He is merciful to us as well. How many times has the historic church made a mess of things? How many times have you and I personally made a mess of things by our sin and yet we're not cast away? How true is it that the Lord's loving kindnesses never cease? How true is it that his compassions never fail? How true is it that they are new every morning? Because his faithfulness is great indeed. Brothers and sisters, you and I are living proof of it. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament is a living proof of the faithfulness of God. And so all praise to God for his faithfulness and continued grace and mercy toward his people, which comes to us through Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we see so much sin and confusion and wickedness going on here in the book of Judges. And yet, Lord, we ourselves are often sinful, confused, and wicked. Lord, we pray that you would help us, that we would come to you, that we would submit to Christ as our King, that we would see him as the great remedy for all of the ills that beset your people in this book. Lord, let us look to Christ. Let us submit to him as our King. Let us worship him. Let us obey him. Let us trust in him. We thank you, Lord, for your great grace and your great mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.